0: The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello and welcome to the Market Pulse podcast. I'm your host Dion and this is episode five, The Recession is Cancelled. Pack your bags, take a sigh of relief. The market ended in green this week, so it was a close one, but good to know that it's all over. I am, of course, being completely sarcastic, but more on that when we check in on how the markets went this week. Just a friendly reminder, you can find this podcast on all major podcast apps. Now, if you do have questions for the show, feel free to email me. So that's at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. And I also have a Twitter handle, which is at marketpulsepod. So, the ASX200 this week actually ended up 0.5%. It's the first time since I've started this podcast that I've been able to say that the, the index, the market actually ended in positive territory. Just barely. It had a, um, started off really bad on Monday and then it had a few green days in, in the middle of the week and then on Friday it actually ended down as well. But overall, the market ended up 0.5% in Australia. If we look overseas to the US, we saw that the S&P 500... Uh, did a lot better, so they're up ten point three percent and the Nasdaq that was up nine point one percent. And you might have noticed there was a couple of articles saying that the Dow Jones, which is another US index that people like to track. I don't actually you might have noticed I don't actually talk about the Dow Jones when I do this podcast. Um, I'll probably save that for another podcast and why I don't, but it's just another index that that tracks how the US markets are doing it's a bit different to the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq but basically the story was out that the Dow just technically entered back into a bull market by certain measures but but it definitely did not feel that way and and I don't think that's that's the case I think potentially this was a short term green week but I guess we'll see what happens when we when we move forward over the coming months you know, Australia is heading into further shutdown measures, especially, of course, it seems to potentially come in harder on New South Wales soon because they seem to be at least the worst state in terms of cases. You've got many retail stores closing up this week. You, know, you would have seen it all over the news. You've got Maya shutting up stores. Uh, they're standing down about 10,000 staff. Although it does, at the moment, it looks like David Jones is appearing to be a bit defiant. that regard which is interesting i can't see that lasting personally but we'll i guess we'll follow that one you had tiger lily which joined kiki k and entered administration this week which is really sad to see you have flight center closing more stores we mentioned premier investments last week and they're the ones that own peter alexander and smiggle just jeans they're closing down ascent group which is athletes foot And Platypus and Hype DC, they're closing down. Kat Med Do, Visa, Rivers. I mean, it just goes on and on. Obviously, retail's been smashed, you know, much less spending on those kind of products, more spending on the likes of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. And that kind of brings me to this next point, which is there was some interesting data which came from a couple of the banks. So ComBank and, and ANZ specifically, and they pulled this data from their credit card and debit card spending or from their customers that, that are spending on their credit and debit card. And we're all aware of how busy the likes of Woolworths and Coles and IGA have been lately, especially in comparison to some other retail stores that we mentioned just before that have uh, unfortunately had to close down. The article which I noticed from the Australian Financial Review on this topic is card data shows the perfect picture of virus reaction. And it's by Matthew Cranston. And there's some really great data points in here. Um, So these ones first are specifically coming from ComBank. So they've seen that food spending is up 49.7% in comparison to the same week a year ago. Then they note that food goods spending, which is specifically spending in grocery stores and supermarkets, that's up 74%, which is massive. So that's compared to same time last year. Alcohol spending is up 20.4% compared to same time last year. Got to do something when you're in quarantine. Medical and healthcare spending is up 24.5%. Yeah, interesting. But, you know, if there's going to be some big increases in spending, obviously something has to suffer. So you see recreation spending down 16%, which seems obvious because especially as things start to close that have, you know, large groups of people or... Yeah, something like the cinemas for example You know that's just going to naturally happen transport spending is down 7% and ANZ looked at their own data they, they saw pretty similar stats so they saw a 40% increase in supermarket spending and specifically a 60% increase in toiletry spending than the same time last year and that kind of speaks to why the market has treated these kind of companies a little bit kinder than they've treated the rest of the market in the last couple of months. So Woolworths is up about 15% from where it was one year ago. So they're not down at the moment, at least over the year period. Coles is up 32% from where it was a year ago. And Metcash is up 17%. So they're the owners of IGA. And that's not to say they haven't been a little bit rocky. They, they have, but I guess we talked about it already, but investors are banking on the fact that these supermarkets, although there's potential struggles in, in the amount of staffing that they need and they've obviously came out this week and, and said that they're hiring thousands and thousands of extra staff just to, to help with the huge customer and buying increases that they're seeing but it, it does sort of tell you what investors are thinking about these companies and, and I guess the, the revenues that they're also bringing in uh, regardless of that and those spending data, or so that spending data is also why you see completely empty shelves when you go into the the supermarket. If you've uh, experienced being in an aisle lately where there's no pasta or, or whatever it is, and you're almost sort of staring, standing around and staring at other people, and we're all kind of thinking the same thing, you're wondering how this happened and and who took all the pasta. But the economy is going through so many shocks right now. There's supply shocks, there's demand shocks, and and this week. I guess you'd say, was the week of unemployment shocks. It was all over Twitter and a lot of news and social media and you see the amount of how big some of the lines at Centrelink were where people were obviously reaching out for support after they've lost their jobs. I think one of the ones I saw was Bondi Junction in, in Sydney and the line was just down the street for many blocks, many, many blocks. And if you remember our discussion a couple of weeks ago, we, we spoke about the oil price plummeting and that's almost another shock in itself, like an oil shock, and it, it threw in a wrench into the mix as well. And I wanted to sort of explore this this week, but why toilet paper, from a supply demand perspective, has become this you know sought for commodity. And so obviously the the, the easy answer and the, the obvious answer is that people are hoarding this particular product, but let's think about why that's an issue. So the demand. It's just—it's completely shocked the existing supply chain for toilet paper, and that is a supply chain chain that's just just not equipped for such an increase. It's not a product that would ever see this kind of increase. Yeah, their demand growth is probably loosely attached to population growth, right? It's not like I'm trying to think of example. Maybe say chocolate that you might see. A demand during Easter and Christmas, like a, a more holiday festive season like that, especially when you're talking about Easter eggs and things. You know, in terms of toilet paper, whether it's Easter or Christmas, it doesn't really matter. You know, whether I'm on holiday or working, or I'm locking my doors and isolating from COVID-19, I'm still likely to use the exact same amount of toilet paper in all scenarios. So that's why it's been such a problem for that product, and and for a lot of products as well. I mean, it seems like it's getting better. We hope it's getting better. The the restrictions from the supermarkets certainly help whilst potentially frustrating some. I think it seems to have been the right call to hopefully normalise it. And it seemed to be one of those problems that just had such a domino effect because first you get the just the crazy hoarder people that just run into Woolworths and Coles and, and buy up all the toilet paper. And then the effect then flows on to Maybe seemingly more rational people that see that behavior and go, "Oh my God, now I'm going to be out of toilet paper and so then they go hoard as well and then and so on and so on and it doesn't it doesn't give you much hope for what would happen to humanity during something like a nuclear war <laughs> breaking out, but anyway, I hope that that sort of made a bit of sense and especially thinking about why these supermarkets in terms of their share prices have have held up as well. I wanted to also talk this week about superannuation and unemployment. If you look over to the US, they just had this insane, insane jump in unemployment claims due to the impact of the COVID-19 virus this week. And there's a great graph on many websites, I think Financial Times and The Economist and The Guardian have, have shown this graph, but it basically you know, lists say since the year 2000, the amount of Americans filing first-time unemployment claims and you see obvious upticks in that figure Say so you look at the GFC it rises up above uh, the 500k mark and, and goes to around more the, the six 700 k uh, number and this week the actual numbers came in and it was 3.3 million Americans filing for unemployment which is smash the pre the, the the last the record that was last set was six hundred ninety five thousand, which was in October nineteen eighty two. So that's some perspective on on just how bad when you have a complete shutdown of the economy, what, what what that can really do to people's lives. And what I wanted to talk about in regards to superannuation is its inclusion in the in this latest stimulus package. And I'll, I'll take a quote from the Sydney Morning Herald which is an article by Jennifer Duke titled Financially Stressed Workers to be able to take $20,000 from Super. The new measures revealed as part of the Federal Government's $66 billion stimulus package on Sunday morning would allow individuals facing financial stress due to the disease to access $10,000 in the 2019-2020 financial year and then another $10,000 in 2020-21 financial year. Now I wanted to talk about my personal opinion on this matter if you disagree i'd love to hear some feedback and if you have further questions we can talk about this on further podcasts i'm going to caveat what i'm about to say by acknowledging i can't really get on the high horse and say absolutely know what nobody should access they super because yeah, you know, thankfully i'm not personally in a super dire financial situation and i'm, and I'm sure there are people out there that Potentially accessing ten thousand dollars out of their super superannuation is just the lifeline that they need to survive until they can potentially find employment or, or at least uh, Centrelink benefits. But personally, I'm against this particular thing, and it's it shouldn't even really be in a stimulus bill because it's <laughs> accessing your own super is is not stimulus. It's it's borrowing from your future, and I know that sounds you know a little bit cliche, but it's it's true. A good exercise is to access the government's MoneySmart website. They have a compounding interest calculator which is just a good tool to be aware of anyway because if you think about the value of dividends that you're receiving from shares or you think about the way your super works because it's effectively like a forced savings for your future and and you're adding to it uh, during every paycheck. If I go to this particular compounding interest calculator and I input that I've got $10,000 which is how much you could potentially draw out in this financial year from your superannuation. So I, so I say I've got $10,000, I say no, no additional deposits, so I'm not going to add to it, but I assume an annualized return of, say, 8%. And in 40 years, that $10,000 turns into $217,000, which is just, I mean, let that sink in, that's in a massive gain on what really is, a small amount of money in the grand scheme of things. I know it's not really a small amount of money, but in the grand scheme of your time and, and over 40 years, it's a small amount of money. And I acknowledge some super funds actually perform better than 8%, but some don't, and it, it depends on what you're invested in. But I, I felt like that was a pretty fair benchmark. As a separate exercise to help you understand the power of compounding, if you take the exact same scenario, but add a monthly deposit of $150 in 40 years, instead of being 217K, that deposit now is $683,000. So I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're 20 years old, $10,000 in your super right now is just that, it's just $10,000. But in 40 years time when you're 60, that $10,000 can be around $217,000. And this is the hard part about compounding. It Takes time, and in this case, it takes quite a long time, it takes decades and decades. But if you can see that through, the results are just incredible. And it's, I understand, it's really hard to see the forest from the trees. We, as a country, and I guess the world, is having a hard time just adjusting to the idea of staying at home for the short term, which is just across a short period, like weeks and months. You know, human psychology is not always well equipped to think so far ahead which is why investing can be very difficult for those who struggle with, say, the short-term volatility in light of that long-term growth. I hope you found that point interesting. It's something I wanted to share. I've just been thinking about it for the last week since I read that in regards to the government stimulus package. But yeah, let me know what you think. And the last, I wanted to talk about kind of investing during a downturn like we're experiencing now. The weird part, though, is this is actually my first time owning shares during a serious market downturn, so I almost feel like I'm completely ill-equipped to to give you any advice during this time, but I've had a couple of friends reach out to me and say, if I'm investing at the moment, like what am I doing? I don't pretend to be the expert, but I have seen a couple pullbacks over the last few years where I've owned shares. I've, I've never invested in during anything like this, though, so... When the GFC occurred, I don't think I. Yeah, I'm almost certain I owned no shares at that point. I'm sure I had super, but I was probably too young to really care. So I have done a little bit of investing. I I bought a bit into VAS, VAS, which is a Vanguard Group ETF, which is an exchange traded fund, and basically it invests in the ASX 300, which is the top 300 companies on the ASX. I have looked at some individual companies as well. I know the other week I was looking at Macquarie Group because they've fallen so, so much. I'm glad I didn't pull the trigger on that one because I think I was looking at it when it was more around the $100 mark, but it's it's fallen even further than that since. I can't give you advice on which company to pick specifically, but I like to think that I do have some words of wisdom for investing during this time. And maybe you have... Invested during a huge pullback like this before. Maybe you have never invested at all, but hopefully there's something you can take from this. So number one, no one knows where the bottom is. And if someone does come up to you and tell you they know where the bottom is, that they're, they're lying. This market is so up and down right now because what the market is, what investors are doing is they're looking forward. It's, they're always looking forward and, and they're trying to work out in this scenario just how bad will COVID-19 be how bad is it going to affect australia and the world and additionally how long will it last and it's going to be fascinating to see the market on the day that news comes out and says you know there's been a vaccine and and trials have come back successful in killing the virus although we should acknowledge that there's a huge difference between finding a cure to something like coronavirus and then actually having the necessary structure in place to properly roll out a vaccine for the entire population of say, just any given country, let alone the world. So nobody knows the bottom. Number two, don't throw everything at once. There's some there's some good value out there that's popping up. Uh, even so, I would hesitate throwing all my money in at once, especially if you're newer to this. You know, for example, when I told you just before that I've only done one bit of investing in the last couple of weeks, which is I put some money into VAS, which is that Vanguard group fund I just said, that was a portion of, I guess, what I had set aside to invest into the market. There was kind of no way I was ever gonna throw all my money at it because, you know, it turns out that the price I did pay for it, it actually ended up falling a bit further than that. So it's not like I was trying to pick the bottom or anything, I just thought, okay, that's a fair enough price. I'm gonna throw a little bit of money in. And if I'm wrong, that's okay, because I haven't thrown all my money in. Over the long term, I, I'm confident that the price that I did buy at will be a good price. But if I'm completely wrong and it falls another 10%, 20, 30, 40%, then all good. I didn't just throw all my all my chips onto the table. Number three, I personally don't think it's over. And I, I think we're going to continue to have volatility. And with volatility, it doesn't mean it's just down. That's up days as well. Like this was a classic week where you saw updates and some and some big movements. You know, go look at the share price of of Afterpay. It is just incredibly volatile. Like it, it 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 has double digit jumps and and falls almost daily at the moment. Like it's it's almost like investors in Afterpay just cannot wrap their heads around at what price or at what cost will coronavirus come to a company like that. If news does maybe come out to be a bit more pessimistic about the way that coronavirus is impacting Australia and, and I, I guess especially if we go into more, I guess, draconian lockdown measures as Scott Morrison has alluded to, you you could be seeing a lot more selling and a, and a lot more further downturn in the market. But I thought I'd wrap up today's podcast with a bit of wisdom from Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. I think in the very first podcast I mentioned Howard Marks is a is a great, well, he's a very famous investor, but he's kind of like not one that a lot of people, like everyone knows Warren Buffett, but not a lot, not a lot of people know of Howard Marks, but I find him just to be you know, as easy to understand, like he's exceptional and actually breaking down complex information and, and just explaining it to the layman um, such as myself. So he posted a, a memo, this was on March 19, quote, The bottom is the day before the recovery begins. Thus, it's absolutely impossible to know when the bottom has been reached, ever. Oaktree explicitly rejects the notion of waiting for the bottom. We buy when we access value cheap. Even though there's no way to say the bottom is at hand, the conditions that make bargains available certainly are materializing. Given the price drops and selling we've seen so far, I believe this is a good time to invest, although of course it may prove not to have been the best time. No one can argue that you should spend all your money today. But equally, no one can argue that you shouldn't spend any. And the more you want to garner potential gains and don't mind market, mark-to-market losses, the more you should invest. On the other hand, the more you care about protecting against interim markdowns and are able to live with missing opportunities for profit, the less you should invest. But is there really an argument for not investing at all? In my opinion, the fact we're not necessarily out quote-unquote, the bottom, isn't such an argument. Anyway, I found that really interesting from Howard. You know, he's someone that specifically, again, bit of, he's a different investor to, to Warren. Uh, his company looks at a lot of things including distressed debt and, and emerging markets, but I found that interesting as a way just to sort of reflect on the way that the market's been moving over the past few weeks. All right, well, that's actually it for this week. Please give the podcast a rating or a review, or both. Happy for you to do both. Uh, you can do that on your favorite podcast app if it's available. I actually don't think you can on every kind of podcast app, but I know on Apple Podcasts you can. Spread the word around if you enjoy this podcast. If there's ever been a perfect time to listen to podcasts or tell your friends to listen to podcasts now, is definitely that time. We've, we've got all the time on our hands. My name is Dion, and this has been the Market Pulse Podcast. Stay safe and have a great week.